0: The Parsha Podcast is dedicated by the Newman, Shapiro, Grossman, and Udelson families in loving memory, and Le'ilu Nishmas Baruch Yochanan, Ben Rebbe Fischel, Fischl, Dr. Bertram, John Newman, whose yard site falls out this week. May his soul be elevated in heaven. Before we begin, I must confess that I am really excited about this Parsha Podcast. I think it's a little bit different than what we typically do here. It's a bit more sprawling than usual. Maybe we could even say a bit more advanced. We're going to be touching on a bunch of different sources and ideas and try to bring them all together. But I do think there will be a fair amount of callbacks uh, to themes, to ideas that we've spoke about in the past. So that may be enjoyable to the grizzled veteran listeners. But even for the fresh new listeners to the Parsha Podcast, and of course, welcome aboard. My name is Yaakov Wolby. This is the Parsha Podcast, coming to you from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. My email address is rabbiwolby at jima.com. and even to the fresh listeners, I hope and I pledge to try to bring it home and wrap it up nicely in a bow. So let's begin. Our Parsha begins with the reintroduction of a fascinating Character. The eponymous character of our Parsha, the protagonist of our Parsha, is Moshe's father in law, Yisro Jethro. And he makes what seems to be a very strange appearance. You know, last week we had a flurry of dramatic events relating to the people. We were attacked by Egypt. There was the splitting of the sea. There was the song at the sea. Twice we were stranded without water. We had the manna, we had the quail. It ended up with the war against Amalek. And our parsha also has a fair share of drama. Of course, the most significant event in all of human history is the revelation at Sinai, national revelation. The entire nation experiences prophecy alongside Moshe and lives to tell a tale. This is, of course, the basis of our religion. This is an event unparalleled in the annals of human history. No other people had a national revelation. No other people even claimed to have had a national revelation. This is a singular, unique, unparalleled event that serves as the basis of our faith. In fact, this is what God told Moshe, chapter 19, verse 9, I am going to come to you in the thickness of the cloud so the nation hears When I speak to you, i.e. they listen and they tap in to the prophecy between God and Moshe, and they will believe in you forever. Our nation will forever believe in Moshe, that he is a legitimate prophet, and that he serves as God's mouthpiece, and the Torah and the mitzvahs that he gives us comes from God. Why do we believe in Moshe? After all, we are a stiff-necked, And skeptical people will believe in him because of the revelation at Sinai. And it is quite dramatic. The mountain is aflame. The mountain is shaking. The people are shaking. The nation sees the sounds and the thundering sounds and the piercing call of the shofar. And they're terrifying. The Beg Moshe to intermediate between them and God, which of course he does, the first two Of the Ten Commandments are said by God directly to the people. The final eight are said by Moshe. So our Parsha does have, as last week, some mesmerizing drama. But it starts off in a very different tone. It starts off with a lengthy side story about Jethro, Moshe's father-in-law. Now, of course, this is not the first time we met Jethro. We last heard from him in chapter four, verse 18. Moshe, of course, marries Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro. And after Moshe has the whole back and forth dialogue with God at the burning bush, he finally agrees to go and to save the Jewish people in Egypt. And Moshe goes, chapter four, verse 18, and returns to Yisro, to Jethro, his father-in-law. He asks for permission to go. And Jethro grants permission, and Moshe goes to return to his brethren to begin the process of the Exodus. Rashi tells us over there, this is chapter 4, verse 18, that Moshe had made a pledge when he married Jethro's daughter that he's not going to leave without permission. And now, because he had made an oath, he went to ask permission. He was not going to leave Jethro without first getting his blessing. And Rashi over there tells us, incidentally, that you know, in the verse in chapter four, verse eighteen, he's called both Jethro, Yisro, and Yeser or Jether. Rashi tells us, oh, we should know that he actually has seven different names. He's called in Scripture Reuel, and Yeser and Yisro and Keni and Chovav and Hever, and Putiel. And therefore, don't don't get confused. It's the same person, Yisro, Yeser. A lot of different names are given to Moshe's father-in-law don't get mixed up so Moshe had made an oath not to leave Midian without permission and Jethro was magnanimous in releasing Moshe from his oath oh and by the way Rashi tells you Jethro had seven names that's the last we've heard of Jethro and our partial begins that Jethro hears what happened to the Jewish people he hears about the exodus. He had sent his son-in-law a couple of months prior, and he hears about it, and he comes and joins the nation, bringing with him Tzipora, his daughter, Moshe's wife, and his two grandsons, Moshe's two sons. And Rashi tells us, again, this is the first verse of our parsha, chapter eighteen, verse one. The verse says, Yisro heard. He is the Priest of Midyan, he heard all that happened. What did he hear? Rashi tells us he heard the splitting of the sea and the war with a Malik. And in the second comment to our parsha, Rashi repeats what he told us in chapter four. Who heard? Yisro heard. Oh, you should know that he has seven different names: Reuval, Yisro, Hever, Keni, and Putil. And here Rashi gives us some more detail. Why is he called by so many different names? So he says the word yeser means to increase. He increased a section in the Torah. Why is he called Yesro, which is yeser plus a vav? Yeser plus the letter vav, the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet? Well, once he converted, he got an additional letter. The letter vav was added to his name, yeser. Why is he called chovav? Chovav means cherished or beloved. Well, because he loved, he cherished the Torah. So Rashi doesn't go through all seven names, of Jethro, just a couple of them, but it's interesting that Rashi finds the need to repeat this curious factoid about the seven names of Jethro. Okay, so Jethro heard what happened, and he takes Zipporah and the two sons, Gershom and Eliezer, and he rendezvous with Moshe at Sinai. There are, of course, two opinions in the Talmud. Was it chronologically before? The sign of Revelation, was it after? Of course, the Torah is not necessarily in chronological order, so it's not really a problem. And there's a very long Ramban that we've spoken about in the past about this subject. So Moshe meets his father-in-law, and he greets him warmly, and he bows before him, and he kisses him, and he inquires about his well-being, and he regales him with stories about the Exodus. And Jethro is duly impressed. Verse 9, He gets goosebumps. Alternatively, the Talmud tells us what Maybe there's another interpretation of what happened. He sharpened his knife and he circumcised himself. He converted and he joined the tribe. And then chapter 18, verse 10 and verse 11, he makes a declaration, Blessed is Hashem who saved you from Egypt, from Pharaoh, who saved the whole nation. Now I know that God is greater than all the deities. Rashi tells us Jethro was a connoisseur of idols. He had worshipped every one of the idols and now that he hears the story of the Jewish people and how God intervened and saved them, now he knows for sure that God, the Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, the God of the Jews is indeed more powerful than all of the other false deities and he brings sacrifices and he breaks bread with Moshe and Aaron and then we have the narrative of Of Jethro, the McKinsey consultant, the next day he sees an inefficient system. He sees from morning to night that Moshe is unilaterally judging all the nation's litigants and answering all their questions. And instead, Jethro proposes a hierarchical system in which the easier questions will be handled by competent, integrity-possessing judges overseeing lower courts, and only the most difficult questions will be sent to Moshe. And after his proposal is adopted, Jethro returns home. Rashi tells us to recruit his family to join the nation as well. And of course, the narrative proceeds to the Sinai revelation and everything that happened before and afterwards. Now, Jethro is not going to be heard from until the book of Numbers, chapter 10, in the book of Numbers. At that juncture... The nation is about to depart Sinai. They were at Sinai for about a year, and they had the tabernacle, and they were divided into various encampments, and they're ready to go to Israel. At that time, this is prior to the sin of the spies, prior to Moshe hitting the rock, at that time, the nation was under the impression that they are about to imminently enter the land, and everyone is assuming that Moshe is going to be at the helm of, of the nation, they're on the doorstep of entering the land. And it seems that Jethro had already returned with his family. And Moshe makes a pitch, this is chapter 10 of Numbers, verse 29, Moshe makes a pitch that Jethro joins the nation when they enter the land. He tells him, this time Jethro is not called, not Jethro, Yisro, not Yeser. Instead he's called Chovav. So Moshe tells him, we're going to the place that God promised. Come join us. We will do good to you. And Rashi points out for the third time that Chovav is in fact Jethro. And Jethro has many names. Don't forget what I told you in the book of Exodus twice, chapter 4 and chapter 18. Jethro is also called Chovav. And this is one of his many names for the third time, Rashi reminds us. That Jethro has many names. So Jethro is told, come join us in our trek to enter the land. And Jethro resists. He says, no, let me go home to Midian. And Moshe persists and insists that Jethro joins them. And he says, what's going to be? Everyone's going to say, well, you converted, but now you're not entering the land because you're worried that you're not part of the tribes and therefore you don't get a portion of the land. Instead, I have a good solution. Moshe comes up with a brilliant solution and he tells Jethro as follows. He says, well, you're worried that the land is going to be allocated to the tribes. And because you're a convert, you don't have a portion. I have a solution. There are 500 by 500 cubits in the city of Jericho in the prime real estate in the land of Israel that are not going to be given to any one of the tribes. Instead, they are going to be held in escrow to be given to whichever tribe eventually becomes the pro- tribe in which the temple is built. And because the temple is going to take up 500 by 500 cubits, in exchange for giving up that land, 500 by 500 cubits, to the nation to build the temple upon, they will get that 500 by 500 portion of land in Jericho. But in the interim, until the temple is built, we have a temporary temple, we've got the tabernacle, until the temple, the permanent temple is built, Jethro and your, you and your family can use this land, and it seems like, indeed, they took him up on the offer, and Jethro joined the nation, eventually entering the land, and Jethro and his descendants, or certainly his descendants, they settled in that portion of the land that was eventually given 440 years later to The tribes. Thus concludes the saga of Jethro in the Torah. And here are some questions. First of all, why is this story and this person, why is it so significant that it has to be highlighted, stories to be highlighted and featured so extensively in the Torah? Now, to compound the matter, this is a question we've asked in the past, there's at least one credible opinion in the Talmud that tells us that the episode of Jethro happened after Sinai, after the Sinai Revelation. And therefore, there was a need to adjust the timeline and to place the story of Jethro before the Sinai Revelation, even though it happened afterwards. And again, of course, the Torah is not necessarily in chronological order, but there has to be a good reason why the Torah would alter the chronology and place the story of Jethro arriving to the nation and making his suggestion. There has to be a good reason why that would be taken out of order and placed before the Sinai revelation. If the arrival of Jethro to Sinai indeed happened after the revelation, it means that there's no way for us to read about the Revelation and to absorb the lessons of the Sinai Revelation, the gain of the Torah, there is no way for us to do that properly unless we first read about the story of Jethro. The story of Jethro is so pivotal to the Revelation, to the giving of the Torah at Sinai, that the proper preparation for Torah is the story of Jethro. Now every year, I actually look back to my notes last year, year before, every year we approach this question again, and we always try to give a different angle, and I think this year we finally cracked the code, the secret of Jethro, why his story is so important, why his narrative is so salient, why it must come before we read about the giving of the Torah and the changing of the nation, that now we are bearers of the Almighty's wisdom and manual for life. Jethro is how you prepare for Sinai. Let's begin. Let's crack the code of Jethro. And I want to approach it from this angle. Jethro, we are told three times in Rashi, has seven names. What is the meaning behind the seven names of Jethro? It seems to have great significance. After all, Rashi, three times in Scripture, Exodus 4, Exodus 18, Numbers 10, Rashi finds the need to repeat this phenomenon again and again. What is the secret of Jethro's septa name? Now, someone having multiple names is actually very rare it's very rare for characters in the Torah to have multiple laudatory names. The only other person I could think of is Moshe. The Midrash tells us in Vayitra Rabbah three that Moshe had 10 names. So Jethro had 7, Moshe had 10. And they are Yered, Chever, Yitusil, Avigador, Avizokor, Avizanuach, Tuvya, Shemaya ben Esan al Levi or HaLevi, different versions in the Midrash, and finally, Moshe. So Moshe has ten names. Besides for that, of course, we have Abraham becoming Abraham, and Sarai becoming Sarah or Sarah. Jacob gets an additional and two names, Jacob and Israel. Hosea is made into Joshua. But to my knowledge, only regarding Moshe and Jethro do our sages specify the many different names. Now, in our parasha, of course, we read about Mount Sinai. And our sages in the Midrash tell us that Mount Sinai had six different names. It's called the Mountain of God, the Mountain of Bashan, the Mountain of Gavnunim, the Mountain of Hamid Har Mount Horeb, and Sinai. But to find people that are given many names is exceedingly rare. And one of those people, one of the people that has this very rare distinction, is Jethro, Moshe's father-in-law, the priest of Midian, the former advisor of Pharaoh. What's happening over here? So here's the idea. Names in Jewish literature, in the Torah, in the Talmud, in the Midrash, they're not just, you know, arbitrary terms for classifying something. A name is a window into the essence of a thing. If Mount Sinai, for example, is accorded six different names, it must have six different facets that describe what it's about. In fact, the Midrash actually tells us what each name represents. The mountain of God, the mountain of Basha, the mountain of Nunum, etc. Mount Chorev, Mount Sinai. The Midrash tells us that to fully understand the Sinai experience, what happened at the giving of the Torah at Sinai, there are six different angels that help contribute to what the essence of the event was. Moshe's ten names reveal his essence and his accomplishments and his greatness and what he stood for. What about the seven names of Jethro? So Rashi already gave us a few explanations. I scoured the literature and found suggestions for all seven names of Jethro. And they conveyed to us some really interesting ideas that help round out our understanding of Jethro, of who he was. Of course, it does portray him in a very praiseworthy light. So, for example, Reuel, the first of Jethro's seven names. Reuel is from the word rea, which means a friend or a companion. El, Reuel, the friend, the companion of God. According to a different version, alternatively, we're told, he was a friend of the Jewish people. To be a friend of God, to be a friend of the Jewish people, that is, of course, high praise. Yeser, Rashi tells us that the word yeser means to increase. He increased a section of the Torah because he gave most of that advice to make the hierarchical system leaders of 10, leaders of 50, leaders of 100, leaders of 1,000, lower courts, higher courts. That is the contribution of yeser, of that name or that element, that aspect of Jethro, and that's why he has a name for that. Yisro Rashire tells us that yes sir you add another letter because he became jewish others suggest the word yisro could mean or could refer to that shayid tebramizim tovon he increased in good deeds chovav hov means cherished or beloved he cherished he loved the torah alternatively he was beloved and cherished by god chever chever means a friend or an associate, he became a friend to the Almighty. Putiel, he absolved himself. He expelled from within him idolatry. He mocked idolatry. These are three different tapes about the name Putiel. And finally, the last name, Kane. we're told, again in the literature, that that represents that he was kane, means he was zealous for heaven. Alternatively, he acquired, he was Kana, he acquired Torah. And this you will like. Listen to this. The Zohar tells us that the reason why it's called Caini is because he emanates from Cain. From Cain. Remember Cain? The brother of Cain and Abel? The murderer who killed his own brother? All the way back in the beginning of Genesis. The soul of Jethro was the soul of Cain. Jethro was a reincarnation of Cain. And then the Kabbalists give us a little bit more. Jethro bore the soul of Cain, and Moshe bore the soul of Abel. And the story of the rapprochement of Jethro And Moshe, that represents the fixing of the broken relationship of Cain and Abel. And the Kabbalists elaborate yet further. Listen to this. What was the real reason why Cain was so upset at Abel? So according to the Kabbalists, Cain killed Abel because each one of them was born with a twin sister that was their spouse. And Abel got an extra twin sister. So he had an extra wife. And Cain was envious of Abel's extra wife. And as a result of his envy, he murdered him. Now that extra twin Again, this is the Kabbalist speaking here. That extra twin was reincarnated in Tsipporah, Jethro's daughter. And when Jethro happily gave Tsipporah to Moshe, who was the reincarnation of Abel, he was rectifying the original sin, so to speak, of Cain. And that's how he fixed the origins of, of the fraternal conflict at the beginning of the world. What an interesting and rollicking idea. Now, the Kabbalists, they also insist that Cain actually had more spiritual potential than Abel. There was more potential for holiness and Torah in Cain over Abel. Hence, and of course we're getting into the Kabbalistic weeds here, Rabbi Akiva, the Kabbalists tell us, he emanated from Cain, and that's why he was able to deduce piles and piles of laws from the crownlets above the letters in the Torah scroll, something that was above and beyond what Moshe, who descended from Abel, was able to understand. Moshe came from Abel, Rabbi Akiva, and Jethro came from Cain, and a perfected Cain is greater than a perfected Abel. And that's how Rabbi Heva had some Torah insights that Moshe wasn't able to understand, like the Talmud tells us in the book of Menachos, page 29b. And in our parsha too, Jethro had some insight that escaped Moshe whatever the deep lesson of the hierarchical system that Jethro proposed, whatever it actually was referring to, there was something that Jethro understood that Moshe on his own did not. And all that stemmed from Jethro being Cainy. that's literally his name, but coming from Cain and Moshe coming from Abel. Obviously, it's very advanced stuff. And of course, We know nothing here at the Parsha Podcast about the esoterica, but it is fascinating nonetheless. So we see there's obviously a lot of praise accorded to Jethro in his seven names. He's a very special person, someone worthy of admiration. But this is what I'd like to propose. I want to speculate I want to suggest that maybe Jethro's seven names also indicate something else. Listen to this. There are, to my knowledge, two other places that an entity is given seven names, and those two are interrelated. The Talmud tells us the book of Sukkah, page 52a, Sheva, Shemos, Yesh, L'Yetzir, Hara. The Yetzirah, the evil inclination, the force that tries to sever us from our essence, that tries to get us to sin, tries to derail our spiritual agenda, the Yetzirah, the evil inclination has seven names. God calls it evil. Moshe calls it Aral, foreskin. David calls it Tame, impure. Solomon calls it a hater, Sonei. Isaiah calls it a misha, a stumbling block. Ezekiel calls it a stone. Joel, the prophet Joel, calls it Tziphoni, the thing that exists within. Jethro has seven names. The Talmud tells us in the book of Sukkah, in the very memorable page 52a, that the Yetzirah also has seven names. Jethro seven names. Yitzra seven names. In the Talmud, in the book of Erevin, page 19a, we discover that Gehenom, Purgatory, also has seven names. Amar vishu malevi. Sheva, Shemos, Yesh, Legehenom. Gehenom has seven names. And they are Shaol. Avadon, Ber Shachas, Borshaon, Titayavain, Tsalmavis, and Eretz Tachtit. The Talmud there explains where each one of these names come from. There are seven facets to the Eitzahara, and capitulating to these seven facets of the Eitzahara will result in the seven facets of purgatory. And there's even perhaps a bit more. Talmud tells us that the Torah is not five books, it's seven books. Why? Because remember those two verses in the Book of Numbers that are bracketed off by the upside-down, backwards-facing moons? It's its own book! So the Book of Numbers is really three books, bringing in the total of the Pentateuch, which literally means the five books. So the inaccurately titled Pentateuch, to seven. And the reason why we have seven butchers, our sates tell us, it's to spare us from the seven realms of the Anom. Moreover, to fight and to thwart the seven facets of the Sahara, The Yetzirah, the evil inclination, the force trying to get us to sin, and where it brings us, the result of a life of a person consistently yielding to the hasra they both have seven names and jethro has seven names so here's the theory jethro is a great hero he wasn't always a great hero Starts of his life, the earliest thing we know about Jethro in his timeline is that he was working for Pharaoh, and when Pharaoh gathered his Vansi conference to try to figure out the final solution to the Jewish people in Egypt, Jethro was one of his advisors. But he fled, and he chose a different life. And he chose to overcome the evil inclination, trying to encourage him to sin. Ultimately, Jethro triumphed over all seven facets of the Sahara, and he was awarded a new name after every triumph. And this would explain the salience of Jethro and why his story is told to us right before we get to Torah, Talmud tells us, very famous teaching the Talmud, the book of Kedushin, page 30b. Barasi Yetzir Hara, I created an evil inclination, Barasi Torah Tavlan. I created the Torah as its antidote. Jewish people, they're on the foot of the mountain at Sinai, and they're about to get the antidote, and we're about to read in this week's Parsha. Before we get there, let's read about someone who conquered the Yetzir Hara completely, Before we get the antidote itself, it is worthwhile to ponder and to study the story of someone who personally manifested the antidote within themselves. Jethro has seven laudatory names, one for each realm of the Etzahara, for each realm of Gehenom that he overcame. That's the structure of the idea. Now let's explain the meat of the idea, the depth of the idea. I want to give, of course, a hat tip to my grandfather, blessed memory, who codified this principle in his writings. What is the nature of the Eitzahara? What is this force trying to derail our lives? What is this foe that we need the Torah as an antidote to try to solve? If we look at the seven names of the Yitzhara, there is a consistent theme strung from beginning to end of those seven names. What is the natural state of man absent the Yitzhara? If there was no Yitzhara, how would we behave? So our tells us that we would be loftier, then angels would be loftier than angels. We'd be more spiritually sensitive than angels. The natural state of man, absent the Sahara is that we would have what's called a soul, what's also described as a heart, that's deeply and intimately and permanently connected to God image tells us there's nothing closer to God than the soul of man. There's nothing, but the angels, nothing is closer and more bound tightly to God than the soul of man, oftentimes called the heart and the spiritual, not the muscle that's pumping blood to our extremities, the spiritual heart. The heart of man, the soul of man, harbors... Instinctive holiness, instinctive spiritual sublimity and sensitivity, and innate goodness. And this is the natural state of man, mankind, of course, absent the Yetzirah. This, our tells tell us, was the state of man prior to the sin of Adam in the garden. Adam pre-sin is a window into what man looks like. And of course, when we say man, we mean mankind. What humanity looks like without Yetzirah. The consequence of Adam's sin is that he got Yetzirah. But prior to the sin, man was intimately connected to the soul. Holiness was innate. Purity, sensitivity, these things were the defining characteristics of mankind. With the sin comes along the Yitzhara, and the Yitzhara severs man's connection with his heart, with his soul. By the way, our saints tell us that the messianic future is the restoration of the state of mankind to the way it was before Adam's sin. God, the verse tells us in Deuteronomy, will circumcise the heart of man. The Talmud in the aforementioned page 52a of the book of Surka tells us that God will slaughter the Yetzirah. These are two descriptions of the same thing. The heart, the soul, will be circumcised. The things that are blockading it will be removed. The Almighty will slaughter the Yetzirah. In this messianic future, man will be restored to man's natural state, of having a visceral connection to the heart, to the soul, to the instinctive bond between man and God. If you look at the seven names of the Yitzhara, these are seven different ways to describe, or seven different levels of the disruption of man's connection to his heart, to his soul. It starts off by being evil. Who called it evil, says the Talmud? God called it evil. The great Rabbi Ruchma explains, there's a level of subtlety in which only God can see what's wrong with it. Moshe called it a foreskin, uncircumcised. Moshe had a a bit more of a coarse understanding of what the etzra is, but if you examine kind of the structure of how Moshe described the Yetzirah, he described the Yetzirah as a heart that's pure but obstructed. The force chain is on top, blockading the pure heart. This is why Moshe's message at the end of the Torah is about the circumcision of the heart to clear away the blockages and let the full, unfettered, unlimited force of the soul to be revealed. The heart is unaffected, but it's covered. Comes along David, the next level down, and he calls it impure. The way David, so to speak, portrays the etzarah, the soul's purity is already contaminated. It's already sullied to a certain extent. Comes along Solomon, and he calls it a hater. Solomon had access to the heart, but it was already commandeered by the enemy. Comes along Isaiah and calls it a stumbling block. A stumbling block, that is a reference to a person having so much distance between them and their soul and their heart, because the Yetzirah is creating a perimeter around their heart a stumbling block preventing them from even accessing their soul. Comes along Ezekiel and he calls it a stone. The soul has been supplanted. It's no longer a fleshy heart. The heart has become so dull, it's like a stone heart. And finally, the harshest level of disruption is described by Joel, the prophet Joel when someone is completely unaware that they even have a soul within them. This description of the Yitzhara is as if something that's hidden within him. They're not even aware that they even have a soul. Their entire awareness has been taken over by the sahara that's now permeating them. It is what is within them. I want to clarify. These are different ways to describe Different levels of blockages separating man from his soul. This is not to imply that these great prophets had themselves that degree of separation, them and their soul, but they are describing a force that is present in the world. We're supposed to be lofty, to be superlatively sublime, to be uber-spiritually-sensitive beings. We're supposed to be veritable angels. And that was our state before the introduction of the Yitzhara, and that will be our destiny after the Yitzhara is excised. But so long as the Yitzhara is within us, our heart gets clammed up, we become boorish and brutish and uncouth and animalistic our angelic half is removed from us the delicate sensitive nature of the soul is covered up it's concealed by the coarseness induced by the et the angel within us in the best case is concealed as if by a forsten and it's inaccessible to us that's the best case scenario the worst case we're not even aware of its existence Torah is the antidote. It's the antidote to this malady, and it's there to help us restore ourselves back to being angels. Jethro was someone who had personally exhibited what this looks like. Each one of his seven names symbolizes an element, a dimension of the Eitzahara that he defeated. And therefore, his story is presented to us right before we get the tools to mimic him. Before he get the tools to do it, we're shown the destination. The goal is to become someone who is as spiritually sensitive and instinctively holy and good and righteous as Jethro. What does he do right before he converts Right before he makes his big declaration, he takes a sword, he sharpens a sword, and he circumcises himself. And then he says, Now I know, now I know, now I have finally unlocked the seventh level. I've circumcised, I've cut away, I've excised completely the forest blockading my soul, my heart. And now there's nothing stopping me. And now I know that God is the greatest one. Tama tells us he took a very sharp knife. There's an interesting Maharal who says that, of course, circumcision is part of every conversion process, but Jethro took a really sharp knife. He made sure to remove every little aspect that was blockading his heart. This was the final undoing of the Yetzirah, and when he reached level seven, he made his declaration. Now, this theme that Jethro is displaying an open heart is consistent throughout the entire Jethro story. Of course, there are so many positive, different positive things that I say to say about Jethro, but it seems that every outstanding quality that Jethro had, it all fits into this paradigm. He was someone who was preternaturally Open-hearted. He was preternaturally impressionable. And this manifests itself in so many different ways. So, for example, he was always a relentless truth seeker. Again, he started off as a member of the Vansi conference. He's part of Pharaoh's final solution, but he ran away. It was wrong. And he ran away from it. Notwithstanding the fact that doing so will cause him tremendous pain. In Midian, he resigned as priest of idolatry, and that's why his daughters were harassed. When Moshe, after Moshe killed the Egyptian and was expelled out of Egypt, he went to Midian, he goes to the well, and there are seven girls being harassed. Why were the daughters of Jethro being harassed? Because Jethro repudiated idolatry, and therefore he had to send his daughters to get water for the flock. Previously, the Midrash tells us the townspeople did it for him. He was, after all, the clergyman. But he walked away. And he was willing to accept the consequences of whatever it takes, whatever it causes him. He knows that this is not true of the idolatry, and he's going to abandon it. He resigned as being priest. He never stops seeking the truth And he fled from falsehood, regardless of the circumstances. Jathro is capable of remarkable, radical change. Think about it. Think where he started. He started off as one of Pharaoh's advisors. And he ends up, him and his family, becoming one of the most important families in the Jewish people. The Talmud tells us that his descendants sat in the marble chamber. They were part of the, the Grand Great Sanhedrin. They reach the absolute pinnacle of the nation. Who do you know that has such dramatic change over their lives? How do you do that? The answer is you can only do that if you're impressionable. The Eitzhah Ramm makes a person unimpressionable. You're comfortable in your status quo. This is the way I live. Change is very difficult because our heart is all clammed up. Jethro is impressionable. He's always improving. He's always earning accolades. Name one. Name two. Name three. Seven names. He hears about the Exodus, Vayishma Yisro, and his impressionable heart says, "I'm upgrading yet again. I'm joining the nation." Our original question was, "What lessons?" does Jethro have to us? Why do we need to hear about his names and his whole story? And Why does it have to precede the Sinai narrative? Now we know the answer. The story of Jethro is a story of change upon change culminating in a former Nazi, obviously not literally, but figuratively, becoming the eyes of the nation. Moshe calls them, you are the eyes of the nation. You are the inspiration of the Jewish people. You are the greatest testament Of how far a human can traverse from where you started until where you ended up. Jethro is the paradigmatic example of someone who accessed that angel within him and rode its coattails until he became Chavir, friend of God, Chaviv, cherished one by God, Reuel, companion of God. He reached the absolute peak. Hearts are naturally impressionable. But the Yitzhak clams it all up. And come, look, in amazement, how much Jethro unlocked from within? At Sinai, you are given the tools to transform yourself in the same manner. It's interesting, and we mentioned this, I think, in the rebroadcast podcast, Right after Side they get three mitzvos, And the mitzvos are, you know, about them making a ramp up to the altar and not to do the cherubs in a way that's not precisely the way it's supposed to be done. Don't make him silver, don't make him four. And not to use metal instruments to create the vessels of the temple and the altar. And the commentaries tell us that these are the three cardinal sins, murder, adultery, and idolatry, in their most sensitive and minute form. Right after Sinai, right after we get the Torah, we're told you to become super-duper sensitive. You know, if you walk up steps, it's not a refined way to walk. And it smacks in the most fine and refined way of adultery. Oh, and using a knife, an implement of murder, in any way we have to distance ourselves from it. Such uber sensitivity. And don't make the cherubs in any way different than the way God wants, because that resembles idolatry. The goal of Torah is to become more elevated, more refined, more sensitive to the subtle matters of spirituality. That's the lesson of Jethro. And that's the goal of what Torah is trying to do to us. We all have blockages upon your heart. If you didn't, you would be an angel. Nay, you would be greater than an angel. I always like to say that the primary audience of the Parsha podcast is humans. Humans, you can be greater than an angel, but... For those blockages. Now, those seven levels, those seven realms of blockages must be removed. But we have a choice. We have a choice. How are we going to remove these seven levels of blockages? With the seven names of Jethro or with the seven names of the place that purges those influences away? The seven names of Gehenom. It's our choice. As the title of the podcast suggests, it's Death row or Jethro. As to which of Jethro's seven names correspond to which of the seven dimensions and names of the Yitzhara, that's a question I'm leaving for you to unlock. Or maybe, perhaps, for next year's Parsha podcast. May the Almighty give us all the strength and the good health to revisit the subject yet again, and to once again marvel at this great hero, this seven-named hero, Jethro, the father-in-law of Moshe. Let's get to this week's exquisite insight. And we're going to focus on one of Jethro's names. Jethro is given many names. One of them is Yeser. Why is he called Yeser? So Rashi already tells us, and we've spoken about this earlier. He's called Yeser because he increased a section in the Torah. There's a section of the Torah that's Jethro's section. He added. Now if you look at Rashi, this is again the first verse of our Parsha. Rashi tells us which Torah section he added. And he quotes a verse from chapter 18, verse 21. When Moshe is told by Jethro, go look and find competent, righteous, upstanding, People that hate money and hate corruption and hate bribery find those people to be heads of 10 and 50 and 100 and 1,000. But here's the question. Is that all that Jethro contributed? Because again, Rashi gives us the citation of what Torah section Jethro added. Yes, sir, he added. What did he add? From verse 21 and on until the end of chapter 18. What about verses 17 through 20? When Jethro sees the inefficient system, he tells Moshe in verse 17, It's not good what you're doing. You're working too hard. You're going to get burnt out. It's inefficient. This is not the way to do it. Why is that not included in the Torah section that Jethro, or Yeser Jether, Added to the Torah so the Imri Emes, this is the son of the Svas Emes, the grand rabbi of one of the Hasidic dynasties he says a very clever answer I like it I think it's exquisite. he says that to complain to complain about a system well that's something that everyone can do that's not contributing. Jethro sees an efficient system and you have to poke holes and point out all the flaws in the system. You know who would do that? Basically everyone. Everyone could complain. Everyone could find faults. Everyone could expose parts of a system that are less than ideal. And you know what? That is not Jethro's contribution. But when he has a solution, when you are productive in the discussion, you contribute something valuable, you come up with a new idea of how things can be improved, That, indeed, is your contribution. I like this idea. I think it's a very clever idea. It's maybe better titled, not exquisite insight, but clever and valuable insight to complain, to find things that you don't like. Everyone could do that. Everyone could do that. But the ones who contribute are the ones who make suggestions to improve. And that's that. Thank you for listening. All the way to the end of this week's Partial Podcast. I hope you enjoyed. You could probably tell that I enjoyed this immensely. My hope is that you enjoyed it uh, at least at least seven to eleven percent of how much I enjoyed it, and then you had a fantastic time. Thank you for listening. Have an amazing and fabulous rest of your day. Have a terrific rest of your week, and have a splendid, spectacular. Sensational Shabbos upcoming. And please God, with the help of the Almighty, in good health, in great spirits, we will talk again next week. The email address is RabbiWolpey at gmail.com.